0: Welcome to 2819, I'm Sandra Dimas.
1: And I'm Daniel Almagier.
0: And today's topic is on the importance of the Trinity.
1: Gonna be a good episode. Yes. In Everyday Apologetics, we will hear from Ken Keithley about the importance of the Trinity.
0: In Science Faith Connection, Jeff Zwerinck will talk with Ken Samples on the topic, is the Trinity important to science?
1: First up is gonna be culture talk. Sandra will be interviewing George Haraksin on did Jesus say that he was God? So let's go ahead and check it out.
0: Now it's time for culture talk where we talk about culturally relevant topics that you can use to start conversations about your faith and i'm joined today with george rex and thank you for joining us always fun to be here you know you are a um, professor of ethics you're also a former pastor yep. and so you're well equipped to answer this question or lots of questions on the topic of did jesus really say that he was god so mm-hmm. let's start there because that's a common yep. question that skeptics and believe it or not christians have as well is did Jesus ever claimed to be God? So did he?
2: Yeah, some preliminary thoughts mm-hmm. um, when answering that question, because how to answer that de- kind of depends on your context. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in in India <laughs> on, on a missions trip, and if I said Jesus claimed to be God, they'd be like, yeah, of course, and there's other gods too, you know, along those lines. But I was a comparative religions major, I got a degree there, and you know, if Jesus was just a human being, we could add his wisdom to sort of what I would call the common core mm-hmm. of religious wisdom and how to live life. Mm-hmm. But if he claimed to be more than that, then we really need to take a second look mm-hmm. and of course being a Christian I do think that he claimed more than that. Mm-hmm. And when I was in my comparative religions degree that was something I really had to, had to seek out had to go deep with because I had Jewish professors, I had Hindu professors mm-hmm. in that and so that question regularly came up. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think he claimed to be God, but we also have to ask, what, what do we mean by God? Yeah. And kind of, if someone's asking that question, and we can even ask it of ourselves, but what can you give me a description of the God you're referring to? Because mm-hmm. that's going to make a big, big difference. If we're thinking about the God of Aristotle or, or Plato, that's more of a, a distant deistic God, mm-hmm. created the world but not necessarily involved with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about a, a, a plurality of gods, that's going to be something different. But if we're talking about the Hebrew God, well, um, that's a very particular kind of God who has entered into time and space. So mm-hmm. I think we want to help ourselves and gently help other people Mm -hmm. raise those issues to make sure we're kind of on the same
0: page. And I appreciate that because I think when people ask questions, sometimes people are ready to respond, they have a canned response, and they haven't actually kind of defined the terms, well, what do you mean by God? Because it can be lowercase g God, Mm -hmm. like hanging out with all the other gods, or a God that's all-powerful, all-knowing, and personal, Mm -hmm. um, and, and deeply aware of who we are.
2: It's funny, there's actually a video game out now where it's called Fight of Gods, Uh and you pick different gods, or you can be Buddha, or you can be Zeus, and you fight against another god, and one of those is Jesus. Oh, wow. And it's interesting. (laughs) Uh, I was at the Evo convention and watching them play this game, Mm -hmm. and and to some people, you know, God is is a video game character, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. so I think we have to surface these ideas for people.
0: Well, I I think that's a, a great way to start. So when you've now established that, um, people are asking if if Jesus claimed to be uppercase G God, mm-hmm. um, then we can start to ask maybe the next question like who who what or who specifically did Jesus claim to be?
2: Yeah, I it was I think it's Ben Witherington who says this that we in our current culture we live in a Jesus haunted culture. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is in the background there somewhere. We have some faint memory of him. Mm-hmm. I even know of an account where a person was buying a necklace and she said, well, uh, what's the one with the guy on the plus sign? Oh. You know. And so we have a faint memory of Jesus. So I think we actually have to go back and to the text to and to that hebrew worldview of 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 what jesus was claiming to be so in the hebrew context think of the old testament the time when jesus lived uh the hebrew understanding of god was that god yes was the the sole creator of the world the only wise god but that that God wanted to be intimately involved with the world Mm -hmm. and seek out his people to redeem them, to rescue them away from their sin, Mm -hmm. uh, bondages, et cetera. So Jesus in that context is identifying himself in a deep and even an intimate way with the uh, of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now, I think also what we have to help people do in a Jesus haunted culture is remind them what are the best sources to go to when discovering what Jesus, you know, said, mm-hmm. it's not a video game. It's not some of the movies from the 70s or whenever that refer to <laughs> Jesus. It's not Talladega Nights, you know, yeah. or whatever. Oh, a little eight pounds, little whatever, eight Alice, pound, little baby, baby Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> um, but rather, we have to go to what are the re- reliable sources and. Numerous scholars, and I would I would uh, agree with them that I think the best sources to find out what Jesus claimed to be is the New Testament and uh, the Old Testament, the Bible as we mm-hmm. call it. So, but specifically the Gospels themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if we look there, here's what we'll find. We find that Jesus uses the phrase or the title Son of Man to identify himself. He really likes that title. And this is before the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And just for uh, one reference for people, take Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 6. He says this. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, And then he says, this is over to the paralytic, he says stand up and take your your stretcher and go home. So right there is a pointer. Not only is he using the title son of man, but he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. Mm Of someone that didn't necessarily sin against him, like if I did something against you, it would make sense for you to go, "Well, I'll, I'll forgive you," you know, if you mm-hmm. ask me. But it would be weird for you to come into a room and say, "You know, I forgive everyone's sin here." Right? <laughs> that's a little bit different kind of well, yeah, it. a. Yeah, that's some sort kind of, of complex, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that title, Son of Man. Then we'll look back into places like Daniel chapter mm-hmm. seven, where Son of Man has a very uh, distinct descriptive that Jesus then fulfills.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so now Jesus is claiming to have authority mm-hmm. to forgive sins. So there's a sign that he may not have outright said, "I am God," but this is all all leading up to that, correct? Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So. In in that claim, Jesus, I think, remember, there's a progression going on. He's revealing, he's now taking on human flesh, he's revealing who he is and he has to be sensitive to the context and help people understand who he is, Mm -hmm. right? So in that process, I think Jesus makes both implicit and also explicit claims Mm -hmm. to be God. And just to give you a couple of examples, let's take one um, implicit claim. In this case, actually, going back, uh, it was C.S. Lewis, who uh, I I read, that made this observation. Mm -hmm. And he says, Jesus makes this curious statement. Mm -hmm. He's giving these woes over to Jerusalem for them not following God, Mm -hmm. abandoning God, not doing justice, and those types of things. And then he says this, He is looking onto the city, and he says, you know, I keep sending you, and I'm going to send you prophets and wise men. Mm -hmm. Now, who sends the prophets? Who sends the wise men? It's God that does that. Mm -hmm. And he's subtly there. You could just read right past that passage, but Jesus is putting himself in the place Mm -hmm. of of God. I'm sending you these prophets. So that's an implicit case where I think Jesus says that. Now there's more explicit places as well. Like for instance, when he meets up um, right around his trial and he engages Caiaphas, the high priest. Mm-hmm. Let me read just a little from that. Um, he says, uh, Caiaphas asks Jesus uh, if he is the Christ, the son of the blessed. And then Jesus replies. He says this, I am. It's a very distinctive statement equating himself with uh, uh, Yahweh. And you will see uh, the Son of Man, there's that title again, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in response, we get a little clue there because Caiaphas rips, you know, his garment and he claims blasphemy mm-hmm. there, Right. So we get an indication by his reaction, the weightiness of Jesus' claim. Now if we had time, we could go through, let's say, the Gospel of John, Mm -hmm. where there's many I am statements, Mm -hmm. and one of those statements, uh, specifically in chapter 8, is a very firm uh, declaration and reference back to the Old Testament where Mm -hmm. God says, I am.
0: Right. Well, that definitely gives us some clues. And I know you said that like if we had time, we can go more into this topic. We don't have a ton <laughs> of time here. Because um, I know like there's a bunch that we can say about the Old Testament prophecy of, um, of the Messiah coming and how that aligns with Christ's arrival and does mm-hmm. it actually match, you know? Right, um, yeah. Plenty more to say there. Is there anything else you want to add before we point people to some resources? We, we
2: can point people. Uh, Hugh actually has a nice little article on our website mm-hmm. about those various prophecies, mm-hmm. about Micah's prediction, about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, about mm-hmm. the crucifixion being foretold in the Old Testament and the suffering uh, uh, Savior. Mm-hmm. So that those are things you can go to. A couple of other resources. Um, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis's God in the Dock has a, um, a chapter entitled, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken, uh, my colleague, your yeah. colleague, uh, fellow philosopher and theologian, his book is really, really good, God Among the mm-hmm. Sages, because it gives you a picture of who Jesus is, but then it also compares in contrast to other world religious right. leaders. Yeah, right. There's one final resource, a little, little bit more advanced, from Ben Witherington, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. called The Christology of Jesus, and that's really like getting a steak dinner, it really has it gives you a lot yeah, to chew on. Nice and uh, meaty. So, yeah.
0: Thank you so much for that, George. So he's given some options from our uh, easy access Q article on our website to this book by Ben Witherington, And in between there is God Among Sages. That is on support.reasons.org, a fantastic book by Kenneth Samples. If you want to hear more from George Heraxon, go to reasons.org and search for George Heraxon.
3: Christians believe that God is triune, father son and holy spirit and that god also created the universe that we live in what is the relationship between these two ideas i'm joined today by dr ken keithley a christian scholar and a professor of theology at southeastern baptist theological seminary in wake forest to answer that question Uh, ken why is it so important that the doctrine of creation be formulated with the notion that God is triune? Yes, that's a great question. And what we find is that the Trinity is at least implied in Genesis chapter one, when God says, let us make man in our own image. Uh, uh, Old Testament scholars have, uh, I mean, there's a cottage industry trying to understand what exactly is being taught there. And I would argue, as the church has argued through the centuries, that, that is not an explicit teaching of the Trinity but it is an implicit allowance for the Trinity and that which is implicitly allowed in the Old Testament is explicitly taught in the New Testament. And it is remarkable just how many times one finds in the New Testament that the Bible presents Jesus Christ, uh, the, the Son of God, as the creator of the universe. It is He who created all things. And it is he uh, that sustains all things by the word of his power. Now, why, why does the Bible make such an emphasis on uh, the Trinity and a Trinitarian understanding, not just of creation, but of salvation and everything? Well, think about it for a second. Um, let's take somebody who was a monotheist but not Trinitarian, and I'm thinking now of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle believed that there was an Ultimate reality, who was divine. In other words, he would believe in a monotheistic God. But <clears throat> this unmoved mover is pure being and pure act. There's no potentiality in him. Uh, Aristotle said, Who would be worthy of his attention? What would be worthy of his contemplation? And the answer is only himself. And so, In Aristotle's thinking, uh, this deity may have been the reason why the world exists, but he's unaware of us and he doesn't care about us. In other words, just like a microbe on your elbow, uh, you, you know, they may be dependent upon you for existence, but it's not like you're aware of them or you actually care about them. And that's the way Aristotle thought of creation in relationship to God. Uh, in, in, in Aristotle's thinking, uh, this God is, in to, is a total narcissist. The only one worthy of his attention and the only one he ever thinks about is himself, and he's eternally, infinitely enraptured with himself and only himself. Well, you, you said at the beginning of your question, what is the relationship between those things? And I like the fact that you word, the word use the word relationship because what we see in a if you have a monotheism that doesn't have a doctrine of the Trinity, you don't have any way for that God to relate to the, a finite world hmm. And so um, you know you, we want to ask some of our uh, monotheistic friends who are not Christians or not Trinitarians. Um, before God created, was he, was he loving? And of course, they would say, yes, God is loving. Well, who was he loving? What, we, what Christians believe is that God eternally has been a perfect fellowship of love, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have infinitely been in this relationship relating to one another. So the fact that God is Trinity, enables him to relate to creation. And in fact, that's what we find going on throughout the Bible, is a God who relates and it is able to relate. Um, Can you think about it? How in the world can you have an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite deity relate to finite beings? And the answer is through word and spirit. When God created in Genesis chapter 1, the way Irenaeus describes it. God created through His Word and His Spirit. The Spirit of God hovers upon the waters, and God speaks His Word and creates. And I like how Irenaeus says it, God created using His two hands. Here we have how God relates to, to us in creation. I would say by extrapolation, that is how God relates to us in salvation. How is it that God is able to relate to us? And a lot of people accuse Christians of superimposing the doctrine of the Trinity on top of monotheism. And I just point out to anybody, if you meet God at all, you meet him as Trinity. Think about it, Fuzz, how you and I come to saving knowledge in Christ. What happened? We heard about a God who is good yet holy, loving and yet righteous, and we became aware of his righteous demands upon us, and we were convicted of our sins. And being convicted of our sins, we heard the good news that His Son has accomplished redemption for us. And if we'll place our faith in Him, we can be saved. That's a Trinitarian understanding of salvation. The Father has sent the Son. His Spirit is the one that was working in our hearts, that drew us to the Son so that we could see the good work of of salvation. And so the way you and I met God was in his Trinitarian functions. He, He is Trinity. He operates as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it is in this Trinitarian nature that we see the Bible presents to us creation and redemption. And I think that unless we understand these in Trinitarian ways, we simply will not understand God or the world in which we live.
4: Hello Jeff Zwerink. welcome to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific and philosophical ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity joined again today by my friend and colleague, Ken Samples, and we are going to be talking about the Trinity and science. Ken, good to have you here today. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, I know you love to talk about the Trinity, and it it just seems like it's a pretty important part of Christianity. So uh, just kind of give us a brief thumbnail sketch. What is the Trinity, and why is it so important to Christianity?
5: Well, the word Trinity comes from triunity, three in one. So a triune view of God is that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, All three of the persons share that one divine nature. So uh, the doctrine of the Trinity says that there's one God who exists or subsists in three distinct persons.
4: So that's some just kind of almost entirely unique from anything else we interact with. And uh, yeah, it seems to me important to draw a distinction that it's not just one God who's got kind of parts nor is it three separate gods, that it's one God, one essence, three persons. Uh, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is that I know you've talked a lot about this, is that the Trinity is actually pretty important if you're going to have a God who's loving and a God who doesn't need things. Kind of flesh that out a little bit for us.
5: Yeah, um, if, you, if you think about a Unitarian view of God, one God, one person. Uh, think of traditional Judaism or think of uh, Islam, Allah, one God, one person. With the Trinity, you have one what? Three who's. One God, three persons. Who does God love in eternity if he is alone? Does he then need to create angels and human beings to get love? Then is he desperate? Does he have to create to fulfill himself? Not so with the Trinity. The Father loves the Son in the Spirit from all eternity. When God creates, he doesn't create to get love or to fulfill himself. He creates in order to uh, place his love upon all of that creation. So the Bible says, uh, 1 John 4, 8, and 16, God is love, and I think it means exactly that.
4: You know it's it's interesting. I see this parallel, and I'm not going to say this is like ooh, a, a, an analogy for the Trinity, but there I see this parallel because as ph- in, as physicists, we talk about the laws of physics. Uh, yeah. you know, lots of different terminology for that, but you've got gravity, the electromagnetic force, strong weak nuclear forces. There's this diversity of forces that we see but yet all scientists all physicists think that all four of those forces were originally unified mm. that there what we see are the low energy manifestations of this one force that there's this unity of the one force that has this diversity and that d- that diversity is what allows life to happen i see this parallel almost between what we're doing in physics and what's going on in the trinity
5: well i mean it- Trinity, triunity, universe, unity and diversity, I think that there really is a connection there. And I think the idea that reality has to involve some fundamental unity, and yet within that fundamental unity, there is a real and genuine diversity, uh, that fits, I think, very well with Christian theology and, I think, largely the way we approach science.
4: So if, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you'll find if you study physics a lot is that, you know, there there is this desire to take these fundamental interactions or any sort of set of phenomena and find a single explanation that encapsulates all of it. You know, and in physics, why it looks different is because the environment is different. Um, but there's often this thought that if we get that kind of one unified fundamental force, we've kind of found everything, that eliminates the need for God because we've eliminated all the gaps, we understand everything. How would you respond to that claim?
5: Well, I, I, I think when we when we look at those types of issues, um, I mean, even even if you look at the universe from a macro level, by the time you get to quantum mechanics um, it it seems challenging to be able to kind of bring those two together to 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 fit them together it it seems to me that in one sense the universe is kind of one thing it's one reality but there are a lot of elements to it that seem diverse Uh, are we going to be able to develop a theory that uh, would explain the universe that it would exclude God well, I think you still have challenges about where the universe came from, why it is, why it has the fine-tuning that it does, why us as human beings have the capacity to trace that. I think all of those things are difficult to explain from a purely naturalist point of view. I think they fit better with a Judeo-Christian perspective.
4: So... Uh, when you look at Christianity, I mean obviously the Trinity is incredibly important. I mean that, that's described right throughout Scripture, right at the heart of Scripture. You change that, you have something other than historic Christianity.
5: It's the cockpit of Christianity. Okay,
4: so if I were to go and say just studying what Scripture has to say and then I go out and look in creation, I find it interesting that there's this one diversity and oneness in God himself and there's this diversity and oneness in the laws of physics. Is it too much of a stretch to say that looking at the Bible, this is what we would expect to see in creation? Or is that just kind of a nice nice uh, happenstance that comes along because I think Christianity is true?
5: Well, I think, I'm not sure that we should necessarily expect that reality is always going to have kind of a Trinitarian component of of unity and diversity. But it does seem to me to be very powerful and almost startling that the universe itself has that kind of component of, uh, you know, universe unity diversity. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in human beings and in the natural order itself we see something that's similar to that. Uh, is is it a perfect analogy? Well, no analogy is ever perfect. But it, but it is kind of provocative to think about.
4: A lot of people have raised an objection that the Trinity is contradictory. You can't have one and threeness. And I love the way you know, it's, there's one, one what and three who's. You know, so yeah. so the way it's one is not the same as the way it's three. Right. Um, but I also find it interesting that when we look at the universe, you know, that we think there are these fundamental forces. That there's these four different things that are actually really the same thing. They look different, but they're the same, if you will. And, and even in quantum mechanics, you have things are both particles and waves, kind of not quite at the same time, do these provide uh, any sort of utility to helping people see that the Trinity isn't
5: contradictory? Well, I I think, you know, I, I think there are people who are, you know, they're STEM people, they're math oriented, they're science technology oriented type of people. I'm more history, philosophy, you know, humanities type of person. I think that that kind of thinking may be helpful to people. Hey, the, the Trinity seems odd, it, it seems unusual. Well, wait a second. Uh, there seems to be unity and diversity in the natural world. Let's look at physics. I think that might be a provocative way of saying, look, uh, could there be a parallel in the natural world that, that speaks to this idea of uni, unity and diversity?
4: Well, thanks, Ken. I really appreciate your comments. It is a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it, that at the heart of Christianity, you have the Trinity, which has this unity and diversity. And when you're looking to understand how the world works, you also see this unity and diversity, quantum mechanics, and even the fundamental laws of physics. find that just a fascinating connection that is kind of what I would expect if the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe. Now, I'd encourage you to go to Reasons.org. Ken's written a, t- a ton of material about the Trinity, but one in particular is called No Trinity, No Salvation, that talks about this unity and diversity, how important it is not only to Christianity, but also to explaining the way the world works also.
1: We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence.
0: You know, I really enjoy just learning more about the Trinity. I feel mm. like that is Definitely a doctrinal belief. Right. And if uh, the more people know about it, the more they're equipped to really answer some valid and tough questions. Right, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. I know that in my life, being in church and like hanging out with friends and everything, that would always come up. And I would always kind of like, yeah, I know about the Trinity, but I'm not really, I wasn't super informed about like the importance of the Trinity. Right. So it was a great time learning about it.
0: Well, I hope that you have learned a lot as well. Be sure to subscribe to the show and to search for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show.
1: And if you would like the audio version of the show, you can find us on most major podcast services. Just search Reason to Believe Podcast.
3: See you next week. See ya.